We have kids class this morning. Hey, bud. Right on. Thanks, Bonnie. What are the ages? What's the age range for the kids class? Small to smaller, something like that. Everybody in our church is like, I don't know. Yeah. Whatever age you would like to stick in there, I suppose. So we're going to continue our conversation about spiritual warfare. Um, Last week, John introduced us to the sort of general disenchantment that makes it difficult for us to perceive uh, in the way that Scripture encourages us to perceive as we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And so I'm going I'm to carry that forward, um, discuss a little more about seeing unseen things, and, uh, and then we'll pass the baton to John King, and he'll take us where he will. Um, so... Uh, let me let me just begin with a prayer. God, I don't know how we could see unseen things, uh, except that you give us eyes to see. And we certainly need your help to perceive things truly. So many distortions around us and and limitations to our own field of vision, and um, Father, we just we we humbly ask that you that you open our eyes to the truth that we we would have the capacity to help one another see through our engagement with Scripture and one another by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would. Make us able to wage battle by your Spirit, according to your Word. Uh, to confront the realities that sometimes we don't even have a category for, that we don't know what to do with, that we don't maybe even believe in. That you would teach us, that you would lead us. And Lord, that your kingdom would come through our participation with your will. We ask this in the name of Jesus, whom we do not see, but whom we love. Amen. So, it was weird this week as I was, as I was preparing for this sermon, because it's weird to preach a sermon about the devil. Uh, Weird for multiple reasons, mostly for me because I kind of feel like, uh, you know, the proclamation of the church, particularly when we're gathered together, ought to be focused on Jesus and the gospel. And um, but the thing is, there's 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 stuff we got to talk about. There's stuff we got to talk about, and particularly, you know, Voldemort. You know, no, but I'm serious. The nameless one, he who must not be named. We treat Satan like that so often. Either out of superstition 
on one hand. Don't want to call it the attention of the devil down on me, so I just don't just don't talk about it. Or out of skepticism. It's like I don't want to talk about that. It's a little lame and weird. And like it's gonna make people uncomfortable when we talk about the boogeyman and we know that's not real. Right? So whichever side of that you're on, it's a little disconcerting to stand in front of the church and say, Satan is real, we're going to talk about it. But that's where we are this morning. And the reason why, the fundamental reason why, is that it does not do to live a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. It's been long enough without a Tolkien quote, so here we are. is true. As so much of great literature does, great fiction does, it captures a truth that we would be fools to make our plans without taking into account the enemy. Taking into account how, that's the question this morning. What sort of account do we give of the devil? What sort of attention should we pay how much, and just in what way. So, let me just give you the overview. You know, I like to give you a little table of contents here. We're going to do five things. These are our calculations. Okay? We're going to talk about attending unseen things. We're going to give the devil his due. We're going to think about some warnings, some advice, and then we are going to end focused on the gospel, where our attention, our attention belongs. So, attending unseen things. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For the momentary lightness of our affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. We are paying careful attention not to the things that are seen, but to those that are unseen. For seen things are temporary, but unseen things are eternal. So Paul's talking about a different thing, right? He's not talking about spiritual warfare per se in this passage. He's talking about our own afflictions and our physical bodies and the, and the, the, the transigence of our life and decay and our experience of hopelessness in the face of that. And he's encouraging us to fix our eyes on unseen things because those things are true in a deeper way. Now, I think that provides a framework for us to understand and think about spiritual warfare because that's really what we're concerned with. We're, engage, we're, we're concerned with engaging the truth of our reality in a deeper way. As we make our plans and our calculations, as we set about doing the work of ministry and, and engaging in the relationships around us and bearing witness to the truth of Christ, there is something deep and true going on that we do not see, and we ignore at our peril. And so, unseen things is where we pay close attention not because the physical is unimportant, not because the body doesn't matter. That's not, that, that would be the wrong direction to take your interpretation here. Um, but because there is more still than what we see with our eyes and feel with our touch. And as Christians, we are 
called to that vision, to imagine, to perceive, to engage at a different level, a true and deep level. But honestly, we just have to ask the question, like, but what does that mean? Like, how would you see unseen things? How would you perceive what you can't perceive? Like, it's no joke. It, 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 it's seriously annoying that this is what we're supposed to do. Fix your eyes on what you cannot see. Man, what are you doing? Like, it's poetic, but what are you saying? Okay, so Paul can be annoying sometimes. We'll give him that. Anybody know what that is? Anybody recognize that? That's the Jefferson Bible. Okay. Well, technically, on the left is one of the source Bibles for the Jefferson Bible. And on the right is a page of the Jefferson Bible. So what Thomas Jefferson did as a good deist who believed in sort of a God who exists somewhere out there and set the world in motion and doesn't interfere, is he admired the life of Jesus, right? He admired it very much. He, he thought Jesus was the greatest moral teacher, that Jesus' moral teaching should be the foundation for our democracy, in fact. And so he set about to create a book by cutting all of the parts of the life of Jesus out that are not in any way related to the miraculous or the hokey. None of the mystical, fantastical, delusional parts of that ancient myth, just the parts that show us the morals and life of Jesus. And he carefully pasted those into his own version of the Gospels. Let's be clear. Just because he did it very practically doesn't mean we don't. You may have never snipped the pages of your Bible into the parts that you like and accept, but there are parts you don't like and don't accept. I mean, in general, I think that's true of most of us. There are parts that we read and we go, well, I know I'm supposed to believe that, but that's not in my experience. I've never seen anything like that. Never even heard of anybody that actually saw something like that. How do I know that that's real? How do I know that this isn't some sort of ancient, culturally different way of perceiving things that I know in a different way? I mentioned at the end of service last week, I know what epilepsy is. Sorry Jesus didn't. He didn't know what to call it. He didn't know how to treat it medically, so he just did some ooby doob something and fixed it, right? But I know it's epilepsy, and I know how to treat it with chemicals, right? Okay, I mean, uh, people can be really evil, and they can be kind of out of their mind, and maybe if you're from that kind of a place, you think it's demons that have got a hold of them, 
but I know that just people can be really evil and twisted and their minds can get warped and they need a lot of therapy and they need like acceptance and if we do that then you know we'll, that they'll be set free we'll liberate them right I mean we, like this is where we live in is it not we have other remedies, we have other frames of reference. We understand the world in a particular way that most of the time does not require any kind of supernatural explanation. And so Christians, by and large, to the rest of the world, when, when they're the kinds of Christians that read the stories of the Gospels in particular and say, yes, I believe that happened, whether we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, which is the sort of the last one that, that liberal Christians let go, or we're talking about just like turning water into wine or exercising demons. When we say yes, we think that actually happened, we sound quite strange to the world around us. Quite strange. And when we say there's a devil prowling around seeking whom he may devour, we sound really superstitious. Really superstitious. I've got to give Richard Beck more credit here. John mentioned his book, um, Hunting Magic Eels, last week. Um, the one that I read this week was called um, Reviving Old Scratch. Has anybody heard the name Old Scratch? It's, a, it's an old southern name for the devil. Old Scratch used to be called like in colon the colonial south. Um, so the, the two books are kind of, they kind of go in tandem, um, but Reviving Old Scratch is just about like dealing with the, the fact that we don't actually believe in the devil. We don't even know if we ought to believe in the devil. Um, and he refers to this, I just love this, he refers to the scooby Dooification of the devil, right? For most of us, moderns and postmoderns, what we think is that the, the way that the Scooby-Doo episode ends is the way that pretty much all of life goes, where you think there's a ghost or a ghoul or a goblin, some kind of monster that's causing problems, and at the end, you unmask it, and it was actually just the evil uncle, right? And he would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you kids, right? But, but in the end, you unmask it. There's no, there's, no, there's no demon there. There's no ghoul. There's no, there's no devil there. It's something else that just got, it got misunderstood because people are superstitious and scared. Scooby verification. So that's what we're pushing against here because otherwise, that's what you get. And I, I'm just going to say on behalf of Stones River Church, I think I'm safe to say that ain't us. Right? We believe the story of Scripture. Not, not to say that there aren't parts of it to understand and properly cultural terms, not to say there aren't conversations to have about what it means in more than one way, but that we believe that the world in which Jesus lived and moved, where he encountered the spiritual forces of darkness, the unseen things, 
resisting the kingdom of God is our world. We live in that same world. So, what we need to do is a little missiology. Okay? We need to recognize the culture in which we speak this message. We proclaim this truth. That Jesus' world is our world. It's a modern world in which the missiologist Paul Hebert says we excluded the middle. We cut out the contact between the things above and the things below. Right? The things above, those, those things that belong in the private, private realm of faith and the things below in the public realm of science where we have shared, regardless of religion, shared criteria for understanding what is and isn't. And then you can go off into your religious enclaves and affirm what is above there somewhere, whatever you think about all that. Right? But the biblical worldview and the worldview of most of Africa and most of Asia and most of Latin America and most of the world does not exclude the middle. We live and move in a world full of angels and demons and signs and wonders and power that we don't have the capacity to explain. And even if we tried to explain it, it wouldn't quite suffice. It wouldn't quite suffice. And so this is a, by saying worldview, what we're saying is the, the core capacity of a culture to perceive. Right? This is a cultural configuration of the possibility, the lens through which we perceive the world. And if our lens has a big, big blank spot on it, a big, a big, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, like a, a blind spot, uh, a covering over a part of it, a darkening of that lens. Well, we just can't. We don't even. There's no. There's no way to even see the excluded middle, then we have to have some cultural transformation. We have to engage the text of Scripture recognizing that it's not just that I know things that they didn't know, but that they know things I don't know. That we encounter one another in our difference and that we are obligated to learn from Jesus and the apostles, and the prophets, what the world's actually like. Just because we can't see it yet, doesn't mean it's not there. And what Paul wants us to do is pay attention to that thing that you can't see. Fix your attention on it. So there's an unseen world that we should pay close attention to in order to give the devil his due. Now, I combed through just the New Testament and I identified 33 distinct actions or descriptions of Satan. It's too much. Too much for slide, too much for sermon. There's so much there. Um, 
Some of it you can kind of categorize and lump together. Some of it's just going to get left out here. But this is just a starting place. This is, these are sort of primary aspects of the function of Satan in the world. The way that Satan is active. What Satan does. Hebrews describes him as the one who has the power of death and therefore holds humankind in the fear of death, which seems to be, from a psychological perspective, precisely the leverage that allows Satan to tempt and deceive and oppress and obstruct. That so much of our response to the forces of the unseen world is bound up with our fear of death. As he wields that power, he tempts either directly, so think of the story of Jesus in the desert, being tempted directly by Satan, or Satan uh, engaging directly with Judas, or when Jesus tells Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Right? There's a direct engagement and temptation there. It's going to tempt you and see what shakes out, see what's left. Um, or through others. So when, when Peter approaches Jesus to rebuke him and advocate for the wrong way of understanding the kingdom of God, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right? And I don't think that's just hyperbole. I don't think that's just, um, just a way of emphasizing how wrong Peter is. I think Jesus is acknowledging that Satan uses the twisted perceptions of others, even disciples, to cause that temptation, right? We come to one another and say, no, why don't we not take up our cross? Let's do it this way instead. Um, we would be fools to think that that's just us, that there's not more going on there. So we guard ourselves against that temptation. Satan, the great deceiver, again, I've limited myself to the New Testament here. Obviously, the original story is about deception, right? The, the, the serpent in the garden, which only much later is identified as Satan. That's a whole other study. But if we, if we take it all together, we have the notion that from the beginning, he's been a liar and a cheat. And that's how he does this. He disguises himself, Scripture says, as an angel of light. Right? Satan's tactic is to make us believe that what he wants and does is actually really good. It's actually, this is actually going to be really useful. This is going to be helpful. Right? Think of all the things in your life that compete with God because they're good things, not because they're bad things. Satan's a trickster. Or he lays traps for us. He schemes, Scripture says, to ensnare us. Think about what that metaphor is, a snare is the kind of trap that you lay for someone and you carefully pick where it is and where you think they're going to go and you try to get them to step into that so that they're trapped, right? Tries to ensnare us 
to trick us. We'll look at uh, one of those snares a little bit later. He oppresses. And this is primarily the language used in reference to uh, physical ailments in the Gospels. The woman who is bent over for most of her life describes her ailment, which is physical to our eyes, maybe some sort of scoliosis or something like that, as the devil's oppression. Right? That there's this this deep connection between what's going on spiritually and what's going on physically. And that the devil oppresses people in physical ways. And in another place, um, it says that the devil will soon throw some of you in prison. Right? So there's agency happening undoubtedly through the governing powers, through the police force, through the authorities that be that were involved in the imprisonment of the Christians in the first century, but attribution is given not to them, but to Satan. Right? He's going to work to imprison the faithful, to shut them up. And similarly, and lastly, he obstructs. So Jesus describes the sower in the parable of the sower, sowing the seeds, and some of it lands on the hard ground, and Satan comes and steals it. Right? So that obstruction is that it's not going to have a chance to germinate. I'm going to try to steal away the message, to distract, to harden whatever the case may be, so that when we hear the word, which is what the seed is in the parable, when we hear the message, it won't take root. Right? Obstruction. Or even Paul says that he intended to, to journey and visit one of the churches that he established, but Satan obstructed his path. In not telling us exactly what that means, he faced what to many eyes would simply be the obstacles of long-distance travel in the first century, right? Storms prevent ships from sailing. Bandits prevent roads from being open. Whatever it is, whatever it is, he perceives at a deeper level more is going on here and Satan is at work, okay? So that's just an entree. That's a, a broad overview to get us to the point of giving the devil his due, right? And by that, I don't mean that, you know, there's it, there at least there, there's, I don't really like the devil, but there's some good things about him, which is how often how we use that phrase. It means that even though I can't see him, he is actually at work, and he is due that attention. I will not say respect. I will not say fear but attention, wariness, caution, and response. That the devil is due. But before I proceed, now that I've painted a picture of the devil, I want to I give you four warnings, and I think these are very, very important. 
because one of the things that the devil can do to ensnare us is get us paying a whole bunch of attention to the devil. Not what we're after here. There are many things that are not seen. The devil and his minions are among those. They are due some attention, not all our attention. So first of all, beware Gnosticism. Now this is a this is a technical term for a religious movement that swept through the church right after its establishment and had legs for quite a while. It refers to a specific set of beliefs, but scholars often use it in a more general sense to refer to the tendencies among religions that believe in divine revelation to believe that the way you get saved or that you become a truly spiritual person is to know the secret revelation that others don't know. Right? To be an insider, to have the knowledge of the truly elect. And I'm guessing John could share some stories here, but there is a tendency, particularly among our charismatic brothers and sisters, but really among any of us who wakes up to the reality of unseen things, there is a tendency to go all in and think, wow, now I know the truth, and that makes me way more spiritual than the people who don't know the truth. And they revel in what they know and sort of pity everybody else who doesn't. Right? This is not secret knowledge. This is public proclamation. And there is something powerful and moving about being transformed to be able to perceive unseen things. But it doesn't make us more spiritual. It's, it's not a special category. It's simply a way of seeing the world like Jesus sees the world. An open invitation to all of us. So beware. Beware a spiritual arrogance if you begin paying due attention to Satan and demons and the dark works in the world. Beware fixation. Uh, giving the devil more than his due, more attention than he deserves. Um, and that often looks something like making the occult the center of your worldview. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip over to Luke chapter 10 if you want to look there with me um, or open thine apps. Um, so, I don't know, like, I think maybe many people in our tradition, in rationalist traditions like ours, my eyes were opened to the reality of demons by the witness of cross-cultural missionaries. That is, the witness of people that I absolutely trust, who've given their lives for the gospel, who have sacrificed so much and risked their families' well-beings and lived in places that none of us want to live and are absolutely trustworthy in my assessment, when they say to me, when they grew up in the same rationalism that I did, the same modern worldview, and they say, I have seen things and experienced things that I can only explain as demonic possession. 
that I can only understand as the power of God working a healing or a liberation. That there's no other way that this is what I experienced. That is how I was opened to possibilities beyond the horizon of my formation as a young man. One of those missionaries, one of my professors at Harding, shared this. I'm just going to teach what I was taught here uh, because he wanted us to be awake to the reality, but he also struggled with students who would get really overzealous about I think John maybe used the phrase last week, but finding a demon under every rock, right? So much so that he had a student one time come into his office where he had various knickknacks, things that he had brought from Africa, from his time there. And there was among those a ceremonial mask from the tribe that he had evangelized. And the student proceeded to rebuke him for having this demonic uh, device, this thing tied to um, false gods and evil spirits in his office as a Christian professor. Of course, he was intimately familiar with what the mask meant to the people, and to him, and that it indeed had nothing to do with idolatry or the demonic or animism, spiritually, it didn't have anything to do with that stuff. It was a part of a cultural ritual. And so he had to tell the student to dial it back a bit, right? And the way that he would encourage us to do that was in the story of the return of the 70, after they come back from... Uh, for the first time, exercising the power to heal and uh, cast out demons in the kingdom ministry that Jesus has sent them on. The first time they come back, in verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us! Exclamation point. I think that's, that's correct. Exclamation point. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nonetheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There is something more important than even the exercise of the power that they are commissioned to exercise. Right? He's saying, don't, don't, don't get too caught up here. So I've, he said, I saw, I saw Satan fall. Satan's fall, that's a done deal. He's, he's, he's finished. Okay? We know that. We know the power is broken. And you have authority, and they will submit to you. Don't, don't celebrate about that. Celebrate about your relationship with God. Celebrate about the kingdom. Right? Don't fixate on authority and power over the demonic. So, beware fixation. Beware surrender. The devil made me do it is not a Christian statement. The devil can't 
make you do anything. Among the 33, if I actually put my finger on all of the different ways that the New Testament talks about Satan, among those is not the devil forced someone to do something. Not even Judas. That's not the way the story is told. Judas did what? Paul later calls making space for the devil. And then the devil occupied that space. And he acted accordingly. And according to my understanding of scripture, the reason that he was guilty of that action is because it was his action. Not the devil's. The devil had to do it. So, so don't in getting really tuned into, oh my, there's demonic activity going on around me. There are things happening. Satan is active in the world. Don't then go, I guess that's why I keep doing that thing over and over. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Maybe why you're tempted to keep doing that thing over and over. But it's your responsibility. Don't surrender. And beware of reduction. Meaning, don't simplify everything to either spiritual or material causes. With the, the excluded middle, we're prone to reduce everything to material causes. When our eyes get opened to a deeper truth, we're prone to attribute everything to spiritual causes. So, and John said this last week, like, I'm sick, so the devil's attacking me, right? Or um, our, our plans for this activity fell apart. Well, the devil's after us, right? Yes, and, right? You, like, again, this is, this is in part responsibility, right? The, let's not give the devil more than his due. And let's not ignore the capacity that God has given us to address the difficulties and challenges in our lives, whether it's through better communication, through the exercise of spiritual gifts, or the fruit of the Spirit, through the use of medicine, right? Through clinical intervention, right? Let's not take someone who is suffering from psychological disorder and say, well, I'm going to pray to cast this demon out, and that's pretty much the only solution here. No. Neither should we intervene clinically and act as though that's the only solution here. Right? Okay, I've got, I've got the clinician saying amen. I'm okay. Right? Um, the fact that there is a deeper truth does not mean that everything else is not true. We have to learn to see multiple layers of truth here. So don't reduce. Please don't reduce uh, as we give the devil his due. Some advice for the wary. I'm just, I admit it, I'm just cherry, we're doing a topical sermon here, so I'm just cherry-picking passages, but these were, um, these lifted my spirit as I studied this topic. Number one, turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. 
this is a description of the purpose of the ministry to the Gentiles, so that they will turn, right? It's a statement of the possible. Because Christ has set the world free, has redeemed the world from the power of Satan, from the power of death that Satan wields. Christ has done that already, therefore we can turn from the power of Satan. He, act, he exercises power, he has power, he acts in the world. Yes. We can't ignore that. But we can turn from that power. We can't say no to it. Jesus has made that possible for us. That's why we celebrate. Right? That's why we praise him. See, he's made it possible. He's made a way. Do not make room for the devil. If you don't make room for the devil, he can't take up space in your life. Again, not more than his due. Don't, give, don't attribute to him more power than he has. You say no. You fill your life with the Holy Spirit, with the fellowship of the saints, with ministry, with the pursuit of the kingdom of God. Man, there's no space for that. So don't make that space. Don't, don't do things that leave gaps that you know are going to get filled with something you ought not to be doing. Forgive one another so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is one of those traps. I want to read this whole passage to you because I found it uh, just sort of astonishing. Not that I hadn't read it before, but it just struck me. You know, that happens sometimes. So hop over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, But if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but to some extent, not to exaggerate, to all of you. This punishment by the majority is enough for such a person. So now, instead, you should forgive and console him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote for this reason, to test you and to know whether you were obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And so we do this so that we may not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When we fail to forgive one another, when we hold on to our resentments and our hurts, we let it fester, that's a trap. That's a trap that Satan will gladly lay for us. And we'll find ourselves ensnared in bitterness and anger. Lastly, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The next line is, draw near to God and he will be present. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. I mean, that's an astonishing promise. Like, you don't need to worry here. You need to be sober and wary and watchful. But just know, you say no to the devil, the devil doesn't get to overwhelm the presence of God. You say yes to the Spirit of God, and the devil's done for. 
in your life. So resist, push back, find those places where you see the temptation, you see the trap, you understand, boy, it sure would be war- it just to cling to the warmth of my anger right now and just resent this person, just wallow in it for a while. Resist. Resist. Let's end with a word of grace. I want to put these two passages together. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now hear this. God is at work in you. Satan is at work in the world. God is at work in you. And God's work is enabling you both to will, to desire, to pursue, and to follow through, to work according to what pleases Him. There's no question here that you were made able to engage in spiritual warfare according to the will of God without risk of being subdued not without risk of conflict and pain, not without risk of significant danger, physical danger, remember, thrown in prison, emotional danger, a lot of traumatic experiences on the horizon here, if you engage, but not risk of being overwhelmed and taken away from God. The devil's not the nameless one. He who must not be named. The devil's a has-been. Little children, you are from God and have conquered the spirits of false prophets. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. There's no comparison here. We don't live in a world where the truth is there is a a power of good and light and an equal power of evil and darkness. That is called dualism, and it is false. Satan's power doesn't even come close to the power of God. That's why he's a deceiver and a trickster and a coward who flees at resistance. Doesn't come close. Demons tremble at the presence of Jesus. Satan is impotent in the presence of Jesus. All he can do is deceive. The one who is at work in you, so that you can will and work according to his good pleasure, is greater in every way than the one who would trick and trap you. Trust in him. As we, like I said, the subtitle of this this was Toward Spiritual Warfare. There's practical things that we need to talk about. I'm not sure exactly where John's going to take us. I I left the obvious text on purpose because I think we need the framing first before we come to 
the the whole armor of God and that, um, but whether or not you're going to go there, um, we got to see. We need our world re-enchanted. We need a vision. We need we need to give the devil his due and be ready then to talk about the practices of spiritual warfare. So that's where we're headed next week. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, let me just speak a blessing in conclusion. Jesus, we <laughs> we come to you in awe and and worship because you alone have been able to set us free from the power of darkness. You alone have been able to liberate us from the clutches of the evil one. And you've done it. And you've conscripted us into this cosmic battle that's so difficult for us to perceive. So I pray that you that you train us and lead us, that you teach us the practices that would allow us to resist the assaults, to overcome the obstacles, to step into the kingdom of God where your presence dwells fully. If anyone here is under assault right now, I pray that you help them resist and help us help them resist. If anybody has made space for the devil in their life. I pray that you help us close that space. Fill it with your spirit. Fill it with your will and our work toward it. You said even the demons believe and tremble well we believe and rejoice because of who you are and the greatness of your power at work in us thank you Lord thank you for doing what we could not for ourselves in the name of Jesus amen